this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes. Today we are going to be talking about white-black in Kaldheim. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to thank my new patrons over at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. So to start off with, thank you very much to Ronnie, CJ, Alex, Michael, Eric, Nick, and David. Uh, really appreciate you and all my other patrons. For anyone else who's interested, again, check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. There are various perks, as you would expect on a Patreon, um, including my show notes, which is the spreadsheet that I go over kind of a detailed analysis on my own of every archetype before getting into, you know, just to break down my thoughts and make sure I know everything I'm trying to say. Also my draft logs for every draft I do to prepare and not to prepare, just any draft I do, and a bunch of other stuff, voting, like voting for what episode I'm going to talk about next and everything. So with that business out of the way, let's get into kind of the agenda for today. Today I plan to go over like the entry points and how you get started uh, drafting white-black, and then talk about how I think white-black is really two kind of core archetypes with a lot of variation and uh, subdivision uh, within that, um, and also talk about kind of in addition to like the things that I think it is, also what it isn't and some common fail states there, and then also get into some notes on specific cards. Uh, just kind of anything that didn't fit in anywhere else, like other other notes I want to make sure to convey. So that's that's my big picture agenda for this talk. Let's kick things off with entry points as usual. So starting as I prefer to with uncommons, since that's where you're going to start most often, since you see them so much more often than rares. The major uncommons that I can see that I would take early that would send me down this path I think the biggest is Clarion Spirit, but then others that are notable. Clarion's, I'm, I'm going to assume that people know the uncommons at this point. A apologies if you don't. I'll, I'll talk about roughly what they are. Clarion Spirit is the 2 mana 2-2 two two that makes a 1-1 one one when you cast your second spell. Dragger's Helm is the black equipment that gives something plus 2, plus 2, and menace, and you can pay to make a zombie when you play it. Furja, Judge of Valor, is the white-black uncommon angel. 2-4 flying lifelink when you cast your second spell. Mill three, but you put one of them in your hand instead of in your graveyard. Poison the cup, that's the uh, foretell removal spell that scries if you foretell it. Rune crown, that's the equipment that gives plus one, plus one, equips for two, three to cast, enters the battlefield, search for a rune. Search your library hand and graveyard for a rune, um, one rune total. Equip it to Rune Crown, and then obviously that rune will draw a card because that's what runes do. Rune of Mortality, that's the black rune that gives Death Touch. Rune of Sustenance, that's the white rune that gives Lifelink. Shepherd of the Cosmos, that's the Fertile Angel that returns a, per a permanent with converted mana cost to less from your graveyard to the battlefield. It's a 3 3 for 6 with Fertile for 4. Usher of the Fallen, that's the 2 1 for a white that uh, boasts to make a 1 1. And Valkyrie's Sword, that's the white equipment that gives plus two plus one and when you pay, play when it enters the battlefield you can pay to make a four four flying vigilance angel those are kind of like the best th those are the uncommons that i think you know are worth taking early that could reasonably lead you into white black in like their possibility space there are some other noteworthy uncommons for the archetype that i'll come back to that's going to be a later part of the discussion but these are like the early pick kind of premium uncommons that lead you down this direction. And uh, I'm also going to get into kind of like notes on each, each of those. Actually, let's just let's let's talk through kind of what's going on with those uncommons now. So like, for example, so basically what I'm thinking is, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to I need to create a little bit of context here, which is that I think that there are two ways to draft white black, as I uh, referenced. I think that basically there's aggro and control, pretty pretty standard division, but I think that um, you need to be serious about it. Like it's like serious aggro and serious control. And I think that uh, I talked about another way not to draft it. I think that there's a trap with white black 
where you can easily find yourself in white-black mid-range because there are a lot of cards that claim to be looking for similar resources to other cards, but that don't work toward the same strategy as each other. And you might become tricked into thinking, hey, these things have the same game plan and have overlapping synergies, so if I play them together, my deck will be coherent. But because the payoffs don't line up in a way that contributes to a meaningful strategy, the deck ends up underpowered despite having some synergies. So like, for example, a lot of the payoffs for casting your second spell, uh, Clarion Spirit and Blood Sky Berserker and Infernal Pet, lend themselves best, and Code Spell Cleric, lend themselves best to an aggressive strategy where something like Doomscar Oracle, like, you know, the payoff there is gain life, which just doesn't accomplish what you're trying to accomplish in the aggressive deck. And so if you just combine any cards that are looking for the same input or have the same output condition, but the output is just like random um, units of value, like just an effect, and maybe the effect is good, maybe the effect's not, but you're just like, look, I got an effect for doing the thing. That's not what magic is about. Like you, you need to make sure that the effects that you're getting contribute to your game plan and you need to have a game plan. And so it's really easy to like, just fall into this trap of like, look, I'm doing the thing and then expect that doing the thing will win rather than like my deck is going to win by like attacking on this angle and accomplishing this goal. And so when you like pare down the things that white black is asking you to do toward a cohesive strategy, like, oh, I'm trying to kill my opponent quickly. Then you start to realize like, oh, Skull Raid, which is the Fertile card that makes my opponent discard, but if they're empty-handed, then it can make me draw. That's like a pretty good way to cast two spells in a turn, hypothetically, because it's not particularly time-sensitive about when I cast it. It doesn't cost a lot of mana the turn that I cast it. And if my opponent's out of cards, it'll draw cards, so it'll give me more resources to like cast two spells. Similarly, Revitalize. That's a really convenient way to cast two spells. It's cheap and it replaces itself. So if I'm worried about like running out of cards to cast, it'll be another card to cast. Well, like Skull Raid and Revitalize aren't cards that contribute to the plan of killing your opponent any, in any way. And so if you're trying to like get payoffs on cards like Blood Sky Berserker and Infernal Pet, that where the payoff is my creature gets bigger and temporarily gets an evasive ability, Clearly those cards want you to kill your opponent. So why are you pairing them with a card that's not going to help you do that? So once you kind of like start dividing these cards into different buckets based on what they're actually accomplishing, you start to form much more cohesive ideas about what the deck should look like. And you start to realize that like with the aggro deck, you do, like, there are real payoffs for casting two spells in a turn. So how do you cast two spells in a turn in an aggro deck? You, the best way to be able to do it a lot of times is to just drop your curved rock bottom, lower your land count, and cast, like, a, a, a two drop and a one drop or two one drops as many times as you can. And don't try to, like, figure out, like, okay, well, you know, how am I getting, like... Just that's the way to do it. The, the best way to do it is not to like figure out how to finagle a bunch of card draws effects into your deck. And like you don't want to have all these spots where you're like, oh, well, I don't want to cast my threat this turn because I want to save it to trigger a different threat in the future. Like you're an aggro deck, you need to curve out. You need to make sure that you're playing cards that let you do that. But that, you know, you can get a few of these like impactful triggers because all your cards are just so cheap and it's fine. So that's like the way to like build the aggro deck. At the same time, you can also say like, all right, look, you know, I don't I don't care about code spell cleric, like that payoff isn't going to matter to me if my game is lasting more than a few turns 
I'm gonna like play the you know like these colors have some strong cards that give card advantage and a really like wide range of hard removal spells like there's just a completely different strategy available that uses the slower and more expensive cards well so you need you need to start like unpacking the cards that are available and sorting them into buckets to form coherent strategies so with that in mind looking back at these uncommons and like which bucket they go in and why so clarion spirit is a super powerful card it's going to be good no matter what you're doing if you have white mana on turn two but as far as like if i first pick it what am i looking to do with my draft it's best in low curve aggro um it's a two two for two it gives you an evasive threat it uses equipment really well you don't need to trigger it a lot of times you just want to trigger it quickly so like the you'll get paid best by this card if you just have a rock bottom curve dragger's helm this is the equipment that you know functions as a five mana four four menace but then you can move the equipment around menace is obviously an aggressive keyword equipment generally works well when you're trying to attack so this kind of lends itself to an aggressive strategy at the same time five mana is kind of a lot and like giving one creature at a time plus two plus two is a reasonable way to like grind kind of grind your opponent out and trade up so i'd say this is like a little bit more flexible and it's not it because it's five mana five is so much mana it's actually not a card that you're really excited about in like the rock bottom like 15 land i'm gonna cast two spells because all my spells cost one and two kind of deck so i think that dragger's helm is actually like almost in the space where it's like a bit of a trap because it's more mid-range than i think white black wants to be but that's not to say that i don't it's a strong enough card that there are ways to use it and i don't think it's like actually a trap i think it will generally make your deck better rather than worse but you want to be careful about like how you're using it and what you're doing with it you can play it in like an aggro deck if you have like some picks and that's how you're getting the five mana for example or you can play it in like a control deck that has like a good number of lifelink creatures that you're happy to equip or um maybe like access to death touch or even like it works well with draugr recruiter the uh creature that can boast to return a creature from your graveyard to your hand because giving that menace and making it bigger makes it a lot easier to attack and boast and get value with it so flexible card whose goal isn't super clear but also one that you want to be a little bit careful with because it's not perfectly suited to either an aggressive or controlling role. Furja, Judge of Valor. Best in a control deck, but it, this is one where the power level is so high that I think that like this rock bottom curve aggro deck is probably still pretty happy to play it most of the time unless you're like heavily biasing white and don't have picks. But like if all your spells are cheap you can really kind of like go off with it in a very good way so it's going to push me toward control but not super strongly and i'll play it in aggro poison the cup is just super flexible doesn't matter it's a great black card it's just, you know one of the best removal spells in the format you're going to play it if you can cast it ruined crown flexible but it's an equipment so it likes a high creature count you can get that you can do that however you do it um it's it is very very good in the aggressive deck very good in the control deck as long as you have runes for it it's just awesome in basically any deck with a reasonable creature count rune of mortality this is you know sim similar situation the note on any rune is it's way better the more equipment you have rune of mortality in particular like small creatures whereas rune of sustenance wants very similar things you want a good creature count and you want equipment to put it on but rune of sustenance is relatively good with large creatures where rune of mortality is relatively good with small creatures most of the time you're looking for runes you're just like i'm going to be happy with any rune that i get but there there is that notable divide there where like my most successful white black deck recently had four rune of mortalities four equipments and four elder fang disciples and that worked really well because Elder Fang Disciple is a 1-1 that plays really well with Death Touch, whereas it would play much less well with Lifelink.
Whereas, you know, if your creatures naturally kill whatever they're fighting because they're large, then lifelink will help you win races where, and death touch won't really do anything for you. So the runes do have some significant differences, but for the most part in a draft, they're going to be drafted somewhat interchangeably. But again, what you're looking for around them might change. Shepherd the Cosmos, this is just like, I, I've heard, I've actually had a number of people ask me like, oh, should I play the sec second Shepherd of Cosmos in my like aggro deck? Yes, yes, you should do that. Your aggro deck has a lot of two drops. They're going to trade. Shepherd of Cosmos is very, very strong. Put it in your deck. If you have more of them, that's cool. Put them in your deck. Usher of the Fallen, just very clear, super strong preference for being in the like rock bottom curve aggro deck. Great attacker, relatively low impact control card. Valkyrie's Sword, a little, like, I, I've argued in the past that this is better than it looks in aggro decks. Not the best in 15 land aggro decks unless you have a couple of picks. Like, you do want ways to, or like, you're doing village rights type stuff, which we'll get to. You want reasons to believe you'll be able to cast this and make an angel some reasonable portion of the time. So it's like slightly stronger in the control deck, but good anytime that you can expect that you'll be able to make an angel some portion of the time. Those are the uncommons. And most of them are like flexible or slightly lean toward aggressive. So as for the rares and mythics, one thing that I noticed before we even get to them is that a lot of them in general push in toward more, are a little bit better in control rather than aggro, which it kind of just makes sense um, if you think about like sealed deck when you have a lot of good rares you often like you can and you want to play control games whereas if you're building a deck because you can't use your good rares you're more likely to want to like build an aggro deck that's going to end the game before the opponent plays rares and so we see something pretty similar with uh the positioning of white black and this is similar to what i've talked about in, with blue white and blue black that it's really, really hard to play a control deck if you don't have access to some really powerful rares. And here we're gonna see the same rares that allow you to play control decks in like the white rares that allow you to do that in white blue and the black rares that allow you to do that in black white allow you to do the same thing in white black if those are the colors that you end up in for whatever reason. For the most part, if for some reason you end up in white black without a rare which would most likely be because you have some of these like good uncommons then you want to most likely skew toward an aggressive deck whereas if you're in white black because you have a control leaning bomb then you're going to want to like know how to draft the control deck around it and when we get to it you'll see that there's remarkably little overlap in which commons those two decks want so getting into the rares and mythics. Burning Rune Demon, this is the seven mana six six flyer that searches for some cards. Obviously this isn't good in a low land count aggro deck, but it's a super powerful card. So clearly, clearly wants to be in the control version. And obviously it's a black, like basically any archetype where you're playing Burning Rune Demon, one of the things you want to be looking to take advantage of is the fact that black can return it from your graveyard. So you can do this multiple times if your opponent somehow answers it. Eradicator Valkyrie. Eradicator Valkyrie is flexible. It's awesome. It costs four mana. It's good in any deck, but it does have a small preference for both small creatures so that you can take advantage of its boast ability and recursion so that if your opponent makes it, like answers it, you can get it back. And also when you make yourself sacrifice small creatures to its boast ability, you can get them back. So you can keep doing it or have them in play or whatever you're trying to do. Halvar, God of Battle similar situation flexible really strong card but happens to like small and value creatures so that you can equip cheap creatures with uh, sword of the realms which is the equipment side of hellfire and then trade them off and then play them for cheap and then equip them again and then trade up again um kaya the inexorable always good but better in control decks it's a five mana planeswalker you want to be able to protect it and then ride it to victory resplendent marshal that's the 3-mana, three 3-3 three, three flying angel mythic that 
can pump your team if you have uh, you know tribal stuff the main preference with this is you want to be heavy white like it's basic like most of the time in limited it's largely just functioning as a three mana three three flyer which is a good but not like wildly exceptional rate so you just want to make sure that since it's one white white you have a lot of white mana don't play it or well don't be excited about it if you're base black starnheim unleashed this is the arguably best card in the set it's better in control because it's so good that it can win from basically any position so you want to play games that are long enough that you will draw and cast it but if you're an aggro deck you should certainly also take it and play it valky god of lies this if you're white black and playing valky it's obviously going to be best if you're a control deck that can afford to splash some red mana so that you can cast tybalt but Nothing wrong with just playing Valky as a two-mana creature. It's not a bad two-mana creature, and if you have like a pick and can make some treasure, you might be able to splash it without even having any lands, and sometimes you'll cast Tybalt or whatever. Blood on the Snow, the controlliest control card that ever was. Your aggro deck probably doesn't want to play it. Cosmos Elixir, generally a control card. Uh, the Blood on the Snow is the Wrath that gets something back if you have snow, six mana. Cosmos Elixir is the 4-mana artifact that gains 2 life until you're at 20, and then if you're at more than 20, it draws a card at the end of your turn. Obviously, more of a control card. Also, incidentally, plays well with life gain, so you want to look for ways to gain life in your Cosmos Elixir deck so that you can get to the point where you're drawing cards instead of gaining life, because drawing cards is more powerful than gaining life. Crippling Fear, this is the choose a creature type, all creatures that aren't that type get minus 3, minus 3. I would say this pushes you to be either control or tribal. White-black has some options for tribal. The easiest to pull off in white-black is cleric, but you don't really end up cleric, like, naturally. Like, there are lots of cards that aren't clerics that you will usually want. Doomscar, obviously a control card. That's the sweeper. Uh, Dragger Necromancer, the fertile sweeper, in case you're confused about which of the many sweepers in this set. Dragger Necromancer, that's the 4-mana four 4-4 four, four, that whenever your opponent's creatures die, they get exiled with a snow counter, and then this lets you cast them. It's a 4-mana four 4-4. Four, four. Uh, it's better in control, but like it's not a, it's definitely not as best in hyper aggro, but it's just a really strong card. Egon, God of Death. My primary note about this card is that it likes Fersia, because Fersia is so good at fueling this uh, your grave at filling your graveyard to fuel Egon. I could uh, it's it's flexible. It's also not an amazing card. First is Retribution. This is the saga that makes an angel and then lets your angels kill stuff and then gives your angels double strike. Flexible, very good if you are like aggressive and have um, some stalwart Valkyries and stuff to take advantage of the angel, like the, the synergy with other angels. Glorious Protector, another flexible card. This is the uh, kind of like Restoration Angel type card that uh, exiles any number of your things, but doesn't give them back until it leaves play. Rally the ranks. This is a little tricky to use. White black's not super tribal outside of clerics. I don't think I'd want to first pick this probably, but I could see like drafting clerics and this being good. Redain, God of the Worthy. Uh, this is the two three flying vigilance god with the backside that's completely busted. If you have not cast or played against Valkmira, you might underestimate it and think that you're evaluating this card based primarily on Redain. You should not have that expectation. Uh, the shield is really, really strong. Also, you can expect if you're playing on Arena to have probably like multiple opponents misplay into it per run. It's really, really easy to blow yourself up by misunderstanding some part of what it does. Uh, I recently had like a spot where I blocked like a four power trampling creature with a three toughness creature. And so Arena naturally tried to have them trample for one. And the net result was that my creature lived and I took zero damage. A lot, lot of different ways for people to just accidentally lose that card. Righteous Valkyrie, that is the 2-4 flying angel cleric that gains life when you play angels or clerics and gives all your creatures plus 2 plus 2 if you are at 27 or more life. For the most part, when I draft this card, I've generally ended up just playing it as a 3-mana 2-4 flyer, but in white-black you can actually draft around clerics, and it is amazing if you do so. 
Runeforge champion. Obviously, this just wants you to have runes. The fact that it wants you to have runes means that you want equipment. The fact that you want equipment means that you want a bunch of creatures. So that's the chain of preferences of Runeforge champion. Turgrid, god of fright. Uh, that's the 4-5 menace that steals your opponent's stuff when they discard and sacrifice. And the backside is the lantern that makes your opponent lose resources. Uh, flexible, strong card, probably slightly better in control just because it's reasonably expensive, but it's a persistent enough threat that it would be a good top end in an aggro deck. And then Varagoth, the Blood Sky Sire, that's the 2-3 death touch for 3 that boasts to tutor. Flexible, strong card. Okay, so those are the like rares and mythics that exist that'll get you into this and um, some of the preferences that they might lead you to. I guess next up on my list is the discussion that we've already had about the split between aggro and control, but I want to go into that in a little bit more detail, talk about some specific cards. The For the aggro deck, um, one thing you really want to keep in mind is that the creatures in white and black are not especially large and the tricks aren't especially large or punishing. Like, Demonic Gift is generally not as much of a blowout as Run Amok, for example. I think that that means that you generally want to prioritize evasion rather than, like, tricks. Like, if, we, if you think back to the Red-White episode where I talked about, like, things that are good with evasive creatures versus things that are good with kind of the creatures that function as if they have provoke or that are likely to get into combat. You generally want to draft your white-black deck to minimize getting into combat with your opponent. You want to attack your opponent. You do not want them to block. So that means prioritizing creatures like Battlefield Raptor and Infernal Pet if you can trigger it and Starnham Corsair and Stalwart Valkyrie. Um, but also, uh, you know, there are, like, black isn't contributing a lot of flyers at common. It's basically just, well, like, maybe you can get your infernal pet in the air. So the other thing that you can do is, if low on flying creatures, you can supplement with raven wings, and you can supplement with removal. You can also just, like, focus on putting power, like, Code Spell Cleric, if you have a lot of flyers, gives you more flying power. Yeah, that's, like... The, if, you, if you have to attack on the ground, you can do stuff about it. You can play tricks. You can play Wings of the Cosmos. You can play... That's the uh, plus one, plus three flying untap thing. You can play Demonic Gift. You can you can make it work. Uh, there are synergies with those cards with, like, Death Knell Berserker. But I think I think it's best if you can get some evasion in the mix. And maybe maybe you have, like, some two drops that don't have evasion that can, that can attack early. But then you want, like, the ability to finish off with some evasion. If you don't have the ability to finish off with evasion, one reasonable backup plan is Carful Kennelmaster. That's the 5-mana uh, 4-4 four, four that when it enters the battlefield gives two things, plus one power and indestructible. If you do that to, like, some Comas Faithfuls or whatever, you might be able to punch through pretty well. But really, you're looking to maximize like Battlefield Raptor, maybe Code Spell Clerk to put counters on Battlefield Raptor, and then um, Pet, and then like Blood Sky Berserker and Clarion Spirit. And the more of this like Infernal Pet, Blood Sky Berserker, Clarion Spirit stuff you have, the more you're like, okay, well now I really want to keep drawing cards. I still want to like do this primarily by keeping my curve low. Now I can start using like Code Spell Clerics and you can get to a spot where you're like, okay, well now I want Code Spell Clerics and I want like Besker Shieldmates. That's the two one that gives you a one one when it dies. And I want to sacrifice those things to Village Rites. You can, Village Rites can be good in your aggro deck as long as you have some like real fodder type creatures and you're not like, oh, well, I'll just like sack my Battlefield Raptor or something. No, you, you want to sacrifice something that gave you some value where you're not losing all the value when you sacrifice it. Um, or maybe like sacrificing a token that Clarion Spirit gave you would be fine. I don't recommend just like assuming in the dark that anytime you're aggressive, like you want village rights. But if you have good payoffs for two spell, then village rights can have a home in this kind of deck. 
also gold vein pick is like top 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 in this archetype like maybe better than it was in any of the other archetypes that we talked about because the treasures make it so much easier to play two spells in a turn and let you lower your land count and really just like fix all sorts of problems. Gold Vein pick is super, super, super premium in black-white aggro. Another card that I want to call attention to specifically is Funeral Longboat. This is the uh, vehicle that is a 3-3 that you can crew, that has crew one. This is a great way to take advantage of your like Code Spell Cleric and Dusk Wielder type cards that you maybe want to play to keep your curve low but maybe won't always be able to attack with. The 3-3 is actually big enough that it's going to be able to attack pretty often and then if you have stuff like Wings of the Cosmos or equipment to put on it or whatever, it's just like, this is not a card that I think goes in very many decks and I think that it goes pretty well in white-black aggro. It also lets you potentially play cards like Elderfang Disciple that maybe you wouldn't want to play because they're not great attackers, but now you like you get one of these you know village rights type decks where you're like, all right, well, I want cheap things, and Elderfang Disciple is a playable cheap card that I saw, but I, I understand that spending two mana for a 1-1 isn't going to kill my opponent, and like I'm an aggressive deck, so I'm trying to end the game before my opponent can cast all their spells. So making them discard a card is a really trivial benefit. But if you have a lot of ways to use the body, you have village rights, you have funeral longboats and stuff, it might not be the worst to put it in your like aggro deck, even though I do think that you generally want it in your control decks and not in your aggro decks. Another card to pay attention to is Jarl of the Forsaken. This can just be a pretty, like, this will let you, it's like a trick. It lets you attack with all of your garbage creatures and then if your opponent blocks with something real you can play that to finish it off and now you have another reasonable threat in play not really what you're looking to do in white black aggro but i do want to call out the specific combo of battlefield raptor with jarl the forsaken where uh you do a point of first strike damage with battlefield raptor if it gets into combat with something and then you finish it off with jarl no matter what that thing was certainly like the more battlefield raptors you have the better Jarl the Forsaken is, though. For the most part, you don't really want Battlefield Raptor to end up getting into combat, but if your opponent, you know, has a big thing that they're going to attack you with, you can leave your Raptor back to set that up. Obviously, you're fine with some removal spells in this deck, but for the most part, like, I'm not excited about Feed the Serpent in my White Black Iger deck. Like, I would rather take just, like, some random cheap threat or something. Uh, four is a lot of mana, and you're never really going to be able to two-spell with it. Bound in gold, I'm pretty happy with. There's a really big difference between three mana and four mana. Yeah, that that's like what I'm thinking about and the shell that I'm trying to build my aggro deck. A control deck is going to play really different cards and it's going to have different uh, considerations. One thing, so there's a set of cards in the control deck that use your graveyard and all of them are strategically appealing. We're talking about like Way Down, Raise the Draugr, Master Scald, and arguably Stalwart Valkyrie, though I'm going to explain why I don't really consider that great in the control deck. The reason is you need to pay attention to, all right, well, all these cards are taxing the exact same resource. Not just cards in your graveyard, but creatures in your graveyard. Waydown needs you to exile a creature in your graveyard. Master Skull needs you to exile a creature in your graveyard. Stalwart Valkyrie asks you to exile a creature in your graveyard. Raise the Draugr's returning creatures from your graveyard. You, you can't do all of these things with a small number of creatures in your graveyard, which means you need to either make sure that you have some plan to get a lot of creatures in your graveyard, or pick and choose which ones of these things you're trying to do. Stalwart Valkyrie, I think, is the lowest priority of these different payoffs for things to do with creatures in your graveyard in a control deck. So I think that like the aggro deck is very happy to use Stalwart Valkyrie as the way that it's choosing to spend the creatures in its graveyard. It's much less interested in Raise the Draugr and Master Scald especially. It might be interested in Way Down if it doesn't have uh, Stalwart Valkyries. But th this is just like, you really want to pay attention to how much you're enabling and how much you're taxing this resource. So while you're being careful about that, some other things to look at. Uh, Master Scald, I think, is pretty important. It's like the one of the best common sources of card advantage in white black obviously uh the the primary place where i use master scald in this format in general is in the multicolor decks to take advantage of 
any and all uncommon and rare sagas that I see that are gold cards. And often, I'm if I'm playing multicolor, I'm playing Master's Called with just like a wide variety of different color combinations of sagas. White Black suffers from the fact that its uncommon saga is not particularly good, and it's you know, you're not going to have a lot of Furshes retributions. So if you're like just white black and it's like, okay, well, how do I use this Master's Gold? Like, sure, Sam, Master's Gold is a good way to get card advantage at common, but how am I getting an enchantment or an artifact into my graveyard to take advantage of this Master's Gold? Well, one, one way that you can do that is maybe you have some Comas Faithfuls and you just hope to mill some. A <laughs> little ambitious, but it could work. Another way, maybe you play artifact creatures that die. Artifact creatures? Are there, are there good artifact creatures? Well, um, at Uncommon, there's Bloodline Pretender, which might be relevant in your control deck where you uh, are potentially likely to have a lot of Cleric. There's also uh, the Scarecrow that foretells for zero that can be relevant if you're trying to do two spell stuff. There's also vehicles. I'm not particularly interested in the Funeral Longboat in the control deck because I think the 3-3 three is relatively low impact. But I am interested in Raider's Carve and potentially the Plow. The reason I'm interested in Raider's Carve is that I think that there are not too many different three mana creatures that I want to play. It's basically just Doomscar, Doomscar Oracle and Comus Faithful at common, both of which have three power. And then Note that I did not list Infernal Pet or Starnheim Corsair. Those, I think, are better in aggro decks, not great in the control deck. And then at four mana, you also have Axgard Bragger, uh, which is the boast, untap and put a counter on it. Dragger Recruiter, which is the boast, return a creature from your graveyard. And Jarl Forsaken, all of which I think are reasonably good in this archetype, all of which have three power. You can also potentially have Giant Ox if you have Plow, and then also have Carve. And now we're getting into the discussion that we had in blue-white about how Giant Ox wants three power creatures and wants Carve and Ox to be around so you have redundancy on ways to use the Giant Ox. All of that stuff ports over to white-black very smoothly. Raider's Carve is a pretty good source of like card advantage where it's like putting extra lands into play sometimes, can trade up, lets you use all these three power creatures that might not... like. It's very easy to end up in spots where Doomscar Oracle and Comus Faithful don't have good attacks or where you know you just cast your dragger recruiter or your expert bragger and you might as well use it to crew the carve and then you have this 4-4 your opponent can't really ignore a 4-4 vehicle so they're probably going to trade off with it and now you can use your master's skull to return it you can actually like build a whole white black deck around i have some raiders carves also another th way that you can take advantage of master's gold is wither crown i full disclosure hate wither crown and have never put it in my deck because every time my opponent has cast it well, a large portion of the time that my opponents have cast it against me, it seemed fairly embarrassing. But I think that it is possible to likely that if you have some Master Scalds and or some Shepherd of the Cosmos, you can actually get some mileage out of Wither Crown, where you play it on something early and then your opponent's like, all right, yeah, I'll just sacrifice this. And then you get it back. And like, if you're getting to kill multiple of your opponent's creatures with a Wither Crown, now, now I'm a little more on board. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's worth like going out of your way to figure out how to take advantage of Master Scald, because I do think that it's one of the more powerful payoffs to like getting card advantage out of your commons in white and black. Now, again, I'm not saying Master Scald is some kind of like way that you can overpower your opponent by like maybe getting a Wither Crown back. I'm saying if you have some good rares that let you build a control deck and you're looking for ways to build a control shell around them, Master Scald with like these packages can be a coherent part of a control deck. Other things to pay attention to in the control decks, I think Goldvein Pick is still good. I think you want to prioritize like Bound in Gold and Feed the Serpent and Iron Verdict. I think the fact that like if you're playing like Wither Crown, Bound in Gold, Iron Verdict, Feed the Serpent, way down, looking for a lot of that removal, pay attention to the fact that the more removal you have, the better Divine Gambit is. And it's pretty easy to end up in a spot in White Black Control where Divine Gambit's good. I think I think White Black Control specifically is Divine Gambit's best archetype in the format and that Divine Gambit's quite good in that archetype. Divine Gambit is the white-white sorcery that exiles something, and your opponent gets to put something from their hand onto the battlefield. Between Skull Raid and Elderfang Disciple, often your opponent won't have anything in their hand, so it's just two mana kill something. 
but even if they do have a hand you use divine gambit and then like maybe they put something great into play but you have another removal spell after it and you just kill that too and it doesn't really matter and your divine gambit is just an extra removal spell for you for the purpose of grinding your opponent out basically fundamentally you know i i, I talk periodically about the like spectrum that exists between tempo and attrition and divine gambit is often tempo negative but it's a very good attrition card um it trades very efficiently with whatever problem you might have so even though it's a one-for-one one, it's a one-for-one one that answers whatever you couldn't answer otherwise so the more your deck cares about and is trying to play along the tempo axis the worst divine gambit is wouldn't be any good in the white black two spelled aggro deck but the more you're trying to play along the attrition axis the better axis the better it is so yeah th those are like the cards that go in each of the, these shells, how they're different and why. So that leaves me with notes on any specific cards that I don't think I've gotten to. So that would be like the noteworthy uncommons that I've pulled aside to mention. Blood Sky Berserker, I didn't list it among the premium uncommons. There's been a lot of debate on Twitter in the last few weeks about whether this card is good or bad, playable, unplayable. I think it's, you know, in general, I think ranking stuff in that way is kind of silly. I think it has a place, and it's bad outside of its place. Um, and, like, it's really good if you are playing 15 lands and none of your spells cost more than 3 mana, and a lot of them cost, like, 1 or 2 mana. It's really easy to run a game, run away with a game if you draw this in your opening hand, and that's what your deck composition is like. And if that's what your deck composition is like, so not you don't have to worry too much about the fact that it's a bad top deck because you're just not top decking that many cards colossal plow i just kind of talked about divine gambit i talked about spectral steel obviously a good card card if your deck is full of battlefield raptors and death knell berserkers it's clearly good in the low curve aggro deck not very good in the control deck unless you've found some ways to go real deep on using its graveyard ability to get stuff back and maybe have some lifelink creatures to put it on or whatever. Vengeful Reaper. This is a card that, like, because it's an uncommon and, like, vaguely reminiscent of Nighthawk or something, looks like it's supposed to be treated as a, a good card. It's fine. It feels roughly like Augury Raven to me, which isn't bad, but is also kind of whatever. It is an Angel Cleric, so it does have synergies with stuff in the set. Um, plays really well with Raise the Dragger. It is kind of cheap. Has Death Touch and Flying, so kind of good at blocking. So, like, pretty flexible. Can go on kind of any of the decks, but don't, like, slam. It, like, it's... I think it's easy to overrate the card. I think it's fine, I don't think it's bad, but I think that it looks better than it is. Speaking of looks better than it is, Turgrid's Shadow, not a card I've been very impressed with. I've experimented with Turgrid's Shadow a lot. Um, I, I will say, do not try to play like no creature Turgrid's Shadow. I think if you're playing Turgrid's Shadow, you want to expect that you're not trying to just like avoid casting creatures and just like hope to kill two of your opponent's creatures. I think that it's at its best in a deck with a lot of like Besker Shieldmate type fodder. Besker Shieldmate's good in aggro or control. And then like if you're control, you want like Shieldmates and Elder Fangs. If you're aggro, you want like Shieldmates and Code Spell Clerics and stuff. And I do think it's reasonable to play it in an aggro deck as long as you have a bunch of like fodder type creatures. If you can set up a spot where your opponent loses their two like large creatures that they were counting on to block with and you lose two of your four or five creatures and attack with the rest, um, that, that can be a very good exchange for you. Um, but again, like for the most part, I just try to avoid Turgid Shadow, honestly. Um, I think it's mostly pretty bad. Oh, the, so, all right. The last thing I want to touch on, fairly important note. I think black-white aggro is much, much better not black white aggro black white full stop any black white deck way better in best of three than best of one the reasons for this are pretty obvious you first of all unless you are exactly trying to take advantage of priest of the haunted edge or like a rare you don't care about snowlands and will usually draft none of them the fact that you don't need to take snowlands means you have more picks for sideboard cards even if you didn't intend them as sideboard cards you kind of can't avoid it because what else are you taking like you just 
have a lot more picks than you need to build your deck. And so if you get to use a sideboard, you'll have a lot more options about how to change your deck around. Also, this color combination is not especially good or popular or contested. So a lot of cards are gonna be available to you, so you'll have a very deep pool. And obviously some cards are better against some strategies and worse against others. And like in best of three, it's not even that unlikely, even though I talked about how there's so little overlap between these two decks that you could fully pivot between the two of them in sideboarding. And just like being able to take advantage of that matters a lot. And in best of one, you can't do that. And it's a it, it makes the deck much weaker than it would be in best of three. And I think part of that is maybe why this archetype gets so much hate, is that so many of the games of Limited in this format are played in Arena Best of One, where you're just giving up a large portion of the edge that you're getting structurally by the fact that you don't have to compete for Snowlands. So, like, I would say that if you are playing Best of One, it's a reason to further avoid just getting into this archetype at all if you can. And if you're playing best of three, maybe take advantage of the fact that it's probably somewhat underestimated uh, by people who are heavily influenced by best of one informed discourse. So that covers my uh, lecture. So now we're going to turn it over to Twitch chat for questions to make sure that I haven't missed anything or that there isn't that I haven't opened up any uh, issues that I haven't addressed. So anyone i did not specifically mention the uncommon land that makes an angel the un uh the like great hall of starnheim or whatever it's called the black land that makes an angel i i did not touch on it uh it is obviously like all, all of the uncommon lands are good in their color combination it is strong it like both versions of this deck uh want like want to have creatures that aren't great and turning a creature that isn't great into a 4-4 angel is a pretty big deal. Not not a whole lot of like strategic analysis around it, except like, yep, that's a good one. Like, put it in your deck. Uh, all of the uncommon lands, I feel like I can fairly reliably table them. That's just generally been my experience. So I'm not taking it early and I didn't have like anything specific to say about it. It's a good card, try to get it late. If you have it, put it in your deck. All right, the next question. Uh, many of the cards that go into this archetype are generically good. Uh, like, Poison the Cup is good in any black deck. What would prompt you go to go into black-white, given that you have uh, good cards in only one of the colors? Probably getting it a generically good card in the other color. I'm not going to like specifically try to be black-white because I got Poison the Cup, but if I have Poison the Cup and then I get past Shepherd of the Cosmos, there's a good chance Shepherd of the Cosmos is going to be the best card in the pack, and I'll take it. And uh, because both of these cards, both of these colors are probably the two like least uh, competed for colors in a lot of drafts, um, you'll likely find that if you started with like a good black card and a good white card, uh, the rest of the table will be more than happy to let you continue to take white and black cards. So the next question is: Is this a uh, deck I won't go into unless I open Ferja or the Rare Saga. It seems like this is like the cards you want in Boros are just too different from Black White. I assume that this is about the difficulty of like pivoting into or out of this deck, making it hard to get into. So, I mean, f to start with, there are obviously other cards aside from just those that would lean each toward this direction specifically. For example, Kaya. As to, or, I mean, uh, another rare Righteous Valkyrie can point you very specifically toward white-black if you want to try to take advantage of its cleric trigger. But to the larger point, I mean, like, I think that it's not that hard to, in pack one, like, start with Clarion Spirit or Usher of the Fallen or something and kind of start on low curve aggro is what i'm up to low curve white aggro is a pretty flexible plan that can like you can stay base white and like end up kind of like going hard on battlefield raptor and code spell cleric and gold vein pick it's like you can kind of just like figure out maybe toward the end of pack one like what's my other color 
and um, it, it's not that hard for me to try to be in a spot where I'm flexible between all right maybe I'm like you know base white uh, Boros or maybe I'm base white Orzov. I, I do think there's a bit of flexibility in the like I am a white aggro deck and then I'm finding like I'm I figure out later on that oh I was a black white aggro deck. The control deck yeah uh, I mentioned that I don't want to be the control deck unless I have rares that push me to be controlled. So I, I wouldn't say that that has to be precisely first retribution. It could just be, oh, I have like some powerful late game rares and they put me in one of the colors and then the other color is open and I'm getting strong cards there. And, uh, you know, like maybe I have Starnheim unleashed and I just like get past a bunch of Feed the Serpents or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can play a deck that just like kills creatures for a while and then makes a bunch of angels. For the most part, yes, it is. Like, I do think that this is one of the archetypes that I'm looking to end up in the least. Next question, what's wrong with the Uncommon Black-White Saga? Uh, so basically the first two chapters have um, a pretty um, weak and or situational impact. Uh, that's the thing where you choose a creature and then all combat damage that would be dealt to your creatures is dealt to that creature. Sometimes on certain game states, this can set up attacks that are difficult for your opponent, but for the most part, it's like most of the time it won't do that. So really, this is like suspend to uh, reanimate something, which is okay. It has some like weird synergies with Master Scald, where you can like reanimate your Master Scald and then immediately bring back your Saga. And yes, it gives flying, which is pretty nice. Um, it's it's not bad if you have ways to get large creatures in your graveyard to return. It is difficult to know on turn three that you're going to have a large creature in your graveyard to return. And if you're casting it only after you have a large creature in your graveyard to return, it might not bring that creature back in a sufficiently timely fashion. So the basic problem with it is that it's very easy to imagine spots where it goes wrong and doesn't really accomplish anything. And um, it's just like very, very like narrow and niche, both in terms of like what kinds of decks want it and what game states it's actually good in. I think that covers things that I haven't already addressed. So um, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you everybody for, everyone in Twitch chat for tuning in live. And thank you to all my listeners on any podcast apps and my viewers down the line on YouTube. I appreciate everyone for checking this out. Once again, I'd like to just remind and request anyone who is enjoying this content to, you know, do any leaving of feedback that is appropriate for the medium that you are engaging on and especially to suggest this to any friends you might have who you think would enjoy it or you know leave feedback on mediums outside of where you're engaging with it uh twitter or whatever if you are digging this i think other people would too and i am always looking to reach more people so that's that's all i have for this week and Come back next week for whatever the patrons tell me to talk about. Uh, that'll do it. Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off.